Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 10th, 2020, and this is show number 783. Well, next week is the 15-year show, and I've gotten so many great recordings. It's been fantastic. They've really warmed my heart. If you have anything you want to add for next week, be sure to get them in soon. I also want to give a big shout out to all the mothers out there. Happy Mother's Day. I've been uh, smothered in love from my children and my husband, and it's been fantastic. Good job, family and kids. It's been really nice. I've also been head down on a video tutorial for Screencast Online this week. I delivered that tutorial on Loopback from Rogue Amoeba, and I also included an update on a few new features in their application, Audio Hijack. I swear I knew everything about these tools, but as always, I learned a ton more. This tutorial won't be out for a few weeks, of course, as it goes through the production cycle, but I brought this up because three wonderful people just happened to have sent in audio reviews this week, and with a couple from me, we have a full-fledged show, and I didn't freak out overstressed because I had too many things to do. So you get a big show, and I didn't have to work too hard thanks to these lovely people. So let's get started with the first one. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. I hope everyone is enjoying getting outdoor and seeing nature as our weather warms up. I wanted to share with you some of my favorite ways to find hikes and enjoy parks. To start with, alltrails.com is a great app and a fantastic website. It has a huge database of over 100,000 trails throughout the world and maintains a community of 1 million people. Individuals can either record their own trails or pick new ones that are already there. Users tag and review the trails, put photos on the sites. There's a lot of filters and has a good difficulty rating system. It can also show you the ascents and descents so you can see how hard a hike is for climbing. The site and app are free and you can look up information about the hikes. The maps show the main routes or alternative routes. To find hikes or good area with hikes, I like to use the website more. It has a way to look at a map and a range for finding new hikes or a list view. The list view is also on the app. For $30 a year, you can get a lot more. You can download the trail-related information to your phone. If you use the app while hiking, it will tell you when you're off course. That never happens to me. No, not, not ever. For those of you who have a GPS device or watch, you can download the GPX file, which can tell you when you're on and off track with the advanced positioning information. I have a Garmin watch I use for hiking where I use the GPX file, and it keeps me from getting lost. You can also print maps if you prefer paper. You can get notifications to let you know when you're on the trail or when you've gone astray. You can overlap the maps with real-time data, including air quality, weather, pollen, light pollution, fire history, and the heat maps. I spend my winters finding new hikes and adding them to my list. Right now, the yearly subscription is half off. Find out more at alltrails.com. Galileo Pro is one of my favorite apps. Allison reviewed it in 2017, but since then, it was renamed Guru Maps Pro. The maps are small download, which is nice if you need to get them on cellular data. Once you download the maps, you don't need an internet connection to make it work. It uses the OpenStreetMap system, which has high-quality, detailed maps that are free. 
I use this app for hiking through England on a nine-day assisted hike. On a side note, if you've never taken an assisted hike, I highly recommend it. These hikes are popular in Europe and other parts of the world, but not really in the United States. This company that planned my trip sent my friend and I free reference material and took our luggage to the next night's stay each day so then we could hike with very light packs. If we got tired, we could travel with our bags to the next site. My friend and I had no internet data while we were there, so we could never tell where we were. But this app kept us on the trail. Sometimes we would end up at a crossroads with six trails going in different directions. I would use the app and point the right way to find out how we should go. I also use the app to drive in Iceland, as well as do hikes there. The maps can help you find food or gas or lodging, as well as points of interest. I always make sure that I have the local map downloaded to my phone in case I get stuck on a trail. It has been great for casual hikes and the deep wood events. I'm comforted knowing that I can find my way out of the woods or look for new places to go. There is a free version, but I recommend the pro version, which is not cheap at $50. I wouldn't leave home without it. You can find out more information and a manual at gurumaps.app, but the App Store has a lot of detail describing the difference between the free and the paid version. I like supporting developers who really work to maintain and improve their apps, and to see what Galileo Pro was grow into what is now Guru Maps Pro is really impressive. It is available only on iOS. Byglass is remarkable and has a lot of neat functionalities. It uses the phone's capability in every way it can. The maker of the app calls it a toolbox, and that is true. I find that I learn a lot just using the app. It is a compass, an altimeter, a sextant, and dozen more things. It can be used to see how high a mountain is or how long your yard is. You can use it to find your car or the trailhead. It has so many uses, and there are great videos on YouTube to tell you how to use the app. I've used it to see how tall a rock was on a hike, and it was twice the height of my house. I suspect that I haven't even scratched the surface on what it can do. Spyglass is an iOS and Android app for around $6. Find out more at happymagenta.com forward slash spyglass. If you like national parks, the REI National Park app is a great way to find hikes, food, lodging, in your favorite parks. It has some nice guides, good filters, and a family-friendly section. I'll tell you a secret. I look for the family-favorite hikes because some of the state parks have very serious hikes that the locals call easy. Ask me about the Cub Lake Loop Hike at Rocky Mountain National Park. My friends lost trust in me that day. I should have used this app. The app is available on iOS and Android, and is free. REI has another fantastic app for finding trails called Hiking Project. It is crowdsourced for reviews and locations, and it has some similar features of All Trails app, but with less data. But you have to love a company that takes what it does and tries to help people do more of those things. If you are interested in national parks or famous drives, you'll want to learn more about the area, its history, and special locations. Gypsy guides are great to learn more. 
They have locations across the U.S., many of which are in national parks. There's also a few in Canada and Australia. What you get is an audio tour of the locations on a drive. The guides are low-cost and informational. You can pause and start it when you get to key locations marked on a live map. I used this at Rocky Mountain National Park and learned a lot. My carload of people loved it too. Learn more at gypsyguide.com. The app is available on iOS and Android and costs around $6 to $10 per tour. So get outside and enjoy nature and the world. Well, I am going to bookmark the blog post that Jill did to make sure I can come back and check out all of these hiking apps when we're allowed to go into our national parks. Um, I was excited to hear that uh, Guru Maps had come out and was the upgrade to Galileo that I'd used before. I also have played around with all trails. We get lost really easily, even on simple trails. And Steve and I have used it before, and it worked as well as Jill said. Should be really fun when we're allowed to get outdoors even a little bit more than we are right now. Hello there, castaways. Professor Terry Austin here with another problem to be solved that ends in a product review. Back in early March, I was at a meeting over spring bake, and hey, I still get to have those because I am a professor. Anyway, at this meeting in Orlando, everyone was sitting in front of my computer and recording a minute or two of video for a project we were working on. The details of that video aren't really important, but the act of recording them very much is important. I wanted something nicer for the audio than the internal microphone of my 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro, so I had a cute little travel microphone recommended by a friend. That thing was adorable, about the size of a book of matches. It folded in everything. It was even made by a pretty reliable microphone company. By this point in the story, you've figured out my problem to be solved, right? The audio on that video was not very good. Maybe better than I could have gotten from my internal mic, but nowhere near what I had hoped for. So, I spent the first few weeks of the pandemic lockdown ordering several microphones from Amazon, knowing full well that I would run tests and end up shipping most of them back. I am not going to tell you about the microphones I did not keep, but I made Allison listen to several of them and some very clever videos which I've now destroyed. I know you're all in suspense and you want me to tell you about the winner, but not so fast. My standards are relatively high. I work every day with my trusty Rode podcaster that's been with me for several years. It swings in on a boom arm mounted behind my desk and always delivers rock-solid audio. It does a great job for my virtual meetings and for my lecture and lab videos for my online students, so I wanted something as close to my Rode podcaster as possible for this lovely little experiment. Enter the little guy that I lovingly call my rodent. The actual name is Rode NT-USB Mini. A little less cute than rodent, but I like it. There is a big brother that I don't want you to confuse this with called the Rode NT, so keep those straight. We're talking the Rode NT-USB Mini. I did a Google search to find out when the Rode NT-USB Mini was released, and the best I was able to discover was a first appeared on Amazon date. That was February 11th, 2020. Having some of the newest, shiniest tech around is always fun. It's a totally adorable microphone, and it's a little over five and a half inches tall by two and 1.4 inches wide. 
That's 141.9 millimeters by 89 millimeters for those of you who like metrics. It weighs about a pound and a quarter. That's 585 grams. And to be blunt, this thing nestles really well in your fist and feels like you could bash somebody in the head. The mic sets on a magnetically attached disc of a desktop stand that's about three and a half inches wide. It pivots 360 degrees on an internal steel bracket, so it's actually a piece of cake to have setting to the side of your Mac or iPad as you record. The bass pops on or off very easily and feels very sturdy when it's attached. If you pop that bass off, you can attach the microphone to a boom arm or some other taller stand if that's what you like. There's also a very clever little dot on the base that indicates which direction to lower the microphone to get it to snap into place. That magnetic socket is actually D-shaped rather than circular, and that dot helps you to find how to orient the mic on the base. Should you wonder about magnetic stuff, what is and isn't magnetic, it's the base that's the magnet, not the microphone bracket itself. So, if you're packing for a trip or tossing the mic into a travel bag, you could actually very easily leave that base disc at home if you like because the microphone sits very nicely on the integral bracket in a really stable fashion. Uh, with the base though, it's actually very solid. The rear of the mic has a USB connector as well as a 3.5mm headphone jack for zero latency monitoring through a set of headphones you might plug in. Back around the front, you've got two lights and a dial. The right-hand light tells you that the mic is connected and powered up. The left-hand light indicates that the mic is live. The dial serves two purposes. First, it's a volume for the zero latency monitoring that you connect through headphones. Second, the dial is also a push-button toggle to mute or unmute the microphone. As for the workings of this little powerhouse, the active electronics are an electric condenser. It's got a cardioid polar pattern. 48 kilohertz sample rates, 24-bit depth, and of course, USB-C connections. One thing I really love is that the mic actually has an internal pop filter, unlike its bigger brother, the Rode NT, which needs an external pop filter. Now, those of you who listen closely might actually have caught me saying that this little microphone sits nicely next to the Mac or an iPad. As a matter of fact, as I say these words, this microphone is plugged into a USB-C cable into my 12-inch MacBook Pro. That's last year's model. And that mic is being powered beautifully by that iPad. So, if you're looking for a real workhorse of a travel mic that will travel easily in a suitcase or even a backpack, take a close look at the Rode NT USB Mini. So this mic sounds fantastic, and I love this review. Uh, luckily, Steve is listening live and noticed uh, a slight uh, mistake that Terry made in his voice, but not in his text. This was actually his 12-inch iPad Pro, not MacBook Pro. So uh, anyway, he's uh, doing the recording into his iPad with this tiny little mic, and it is adorable. I love this. Uh, this mic sounds great. You saying it sounded like something or feels like something you could club somebody with reminds me I've got a Samsung mic that my friend Naraj always called the bullet mic. And it just feels like something you could put in your hand and club somebody with. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Thanks for the great review, Terry. Now I want one, though. When we all went underground, I did a blog post where I talked about the essential equipment for participating in video calls from home. I also warned you about price gouging. 
At the time, the Logitech C920 webcam that I recommended, and basically everybody recommends, was going for close to $300 when it's normally closer to $50. But at the time, it was still available for the normal retail price if you went directly through Logitech. Sadly, finding a Logitech C920 is now like finding a four-leaf clover. So how do you project your best image without a good camera since you can't find one right now? You might think that your internal camera on your, on your laptop would be good enough. I'm sure there are some laptops with cameras that are passable for, you know, a family Zoom for cocktails, but to have a professional image, you're going to want more than that. Even if you drop top dollar on a 16-inch MacBook Pro, the EyeSight camera in that device is still only 720p at 30 frames per second. It seems tragic to use this poor quality camera if you've got an iPhone or Android phone sitting there with a fabulous camera. Even if you're sporting an original iPhone SE from 2016, you've got a camera capable of doing 1080p video at 60 frames per second. If you have one of the newer cameras like an iPhone 8 from 2017 or even the new $400 SE, you can do 4K video at 60 frames per second. So now how do you feel about using that built-in eyesight on your Mac? Well, unfortunately, you can't just plug your phone into your Mac or PC and use it as a webcam. Or can you? The $8 app Epoch Cam from Canoni claims to allow you to use your iPhone or Android phone as a high-quality camera for your Mac or PC. I first heard about this app when Leo Laporte mentioned it on MacBreak Weekly. It sounded intriguing, so I decided to check it out for myself. The good news is that Canoni has a free version of their app for you to try out first to make sure that it will work for you. I like the way they did this, too. The free app is spectacularly annoying with ads up to and including covering the view of your camera with an entire ad right in the middle of a video session. Now, I say this is a good way to do it because they don't use an in-app purchase to get rid of the ads. You buy it outright for $8 as a completely separate app. The reason I like that is that it means uh, the app can be shared on your family plan for iOS. I'm not sure how that works on Android, but I bet they have something similar. Anyway, I downloaded the free version, and then the instructions told me to go to canoni.com to download a driver. The driver installation on the desktop was painless, and I agreed to the expected questions about allowing EpochCam access to my camera and microphone. On Windows, they include a little viewer app to test the camera, but on the Mac, they have you search for WebRTC samples in your browser. WebRTC is an open source protocol to all real-time communications, that's why they call it RTC, from within a browser. I found a section in the GitHub repository for the open source project for WebRTC where you could test a camera and a microphone, and oddly, it did not recognize EpochCam. Hmm. I was using Safari for Mac at the time, so I switched to Chrome since Chrome, for some reason, usually works better with video interfaces. And sure enough, on Chrome, I could choose the virtual Epoch Cam as my source, and I could see video from my camera on the WebRTC test page. Sweet! Okay, now let's talk for a moment about the features they promise if you upgrade from the free version, because it's way more than just getting rid of the ads. They promise... You can, first of all, you can use your phone as a microphone as well. Now, in a lot of cases, that's way better than the built-in mic on your laptop, probably all of them, and the phone can be a lot closer to your mouth so you get less room noise if you use your phone's microphone. Even if you don't need a webcam, it might be worth the eight bucks if you didn't get a big girl mic before the shutdown. All right, you can also have manual focus. 
You can tap to focus and uh, and locked focus mode is supposed to keep the subject focused with manual focus. You're also supposed to get dual camera support and that allows you to use uh, the front and back cameras where the free version only allows you to do the back camera. Forget about that 4K video you could do, unfortunately, that I was all excited about with your iPhone SE. Even the paid version tops out at 1080p, but you can go to 60 frames per second with it. Now, as an FYI, the elusive C920 camera you can't buy is only 1080p anyway, so we're doing pretty good. Now, they've got a section, uh, they talk about connection modes, and it's really interesting. You can connect over USB, uh, as you might expect, but you can also use Epoch Cam over Wi-Fi. This means you would be completely untethered as you participated in a call. You can also use Epoch Cam as what's called an NDI source. That's something you probably don't need, but it's actually very useful to me in using Mimo Call to, do, to provide a separate camera to Steve for the live show. We could have me on my regular webcam, but say, give Tesla my iPhone as she wanders around the house. Tesla cam. It'd be awesome. All right. It was time to stop being excited about the promises and try out the full version of Epoch cam. I jumped onto Zoom and I tried to select Epoch cam for video. And sure enough, it was there. I selected it and my video looked great. I could use either the front or back camera. I looked at the settings and I was able to change connection methods like untethering and using Wi-Fi. They have a setting to use a green screen, but nah, it's pretty janky. I probably wouldn't use it even with my real green screen. It didn't work very well. Then Steve and I launched Mimo Live and we tested the NDI capability. I said, you would might not care about, but I definitely do. The video looked fantastic, even as I untethered. I walked all over the house and with the exception of when my iPhone jumped from Eero to Eero, he said it worked great, but then it didn't. I got a circle on screen that said connecting and I could not get back to where he could see me. I quit the app a couple of times, but that didn't help. In fact, the app started quitting all by itself. I wondered whether it was a problem with having the free and paid option options both on my phone. So I deleted the free one. I restarted my phone and then it started to work again. Still kind of gave me a queasy feeling that it maybe wasn't completely stable. Next, I launched a Google Hangout. <laughs> yes. They're still there, but they don't sound long for this world. And of course, I did the Google Hangout using Chrome and Epoch can work great there too. I tried Safari, which is never super happy with video input, like I said, and Google Hangouts did not see the camera. I was kind of curious. I tested Epoch Cam and Skype, and again, it worked beautifully. Some time passed, and I went back into Zoom to verify some things as I was writing up this review, and to my dismay, the Epoch Cam virtual camera was not an option to select for video input, even though I had used it there before. I went over to Canoni's website and I found terrible news. A recent update to Zoom has disabled the use of virtual cameras. They said, this is the Canoni people, they said, recently many macOS applications have started enabling security feature called library validation. This disables using virtual webcams like Epoch Cam. There is also a workaround. You can remove signature from the app, allowing it load again, load third-party libraries such as Epoch Cam plugin. And it started with install Xcode command line tools via terminal app. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, that is so not happening. I love a good command line solution as much as the next girl, but I am not removing a security feature like that. Well, it turns out Skype for Business has disabled Epoch Cam and other virtual cameras as well, and so has Snapcam. 
I started perusing some of their other FAQs and I discovered this. On macOS uh, 10.14 Mojave, Apple has stopped supporting third-party webcams in Apple applications like FaceTime, Safari, and Photo Booth. Nothing we can do about that. Sorry. Well, that explains why Safari wasn't working in any of my cases, right? I was super excited about Epoch Cam as a solution as a webcam, but the available apps is super narrow and probably narrowing. Skype for non-business seems to work for now, and the dead man walking Google Hangouts are all normal people can use this for. What I don't know is whether Windows and their equivalent apps like Zoom and Skype for Business have invoked similar security measures. So this still might work for you if you're on Windows. Now, while I may be the only person in the conversation will get the advantage of the NDI interface, if it's stable, you might still want to get Epoch Cam to use your iPhone or Android phone as a microphone. For eight bucks, it might be a great solution to not having a big girl mic. As Alex Lindsay, the crazy high-end video guy, once said in a class I took from him at the Podcast Expo, the most important thing about video is audio. I was thinking about Patreon and the people I support through the service. Let's take Daily Tech News Show, for example. If that show was to go away tomorrow, how sad would I be? (laughs) I would be devastated. I love that show. Would I write to Tom and say, Hey, if I give you a dollar per month, would you keep going? How about two bucks? Well, Tom's show is supported entirely by Patreon, so people like me can already give him that dollar or two per month to demonstrate the value we get out of the show. Now, of course, with my show, it's different. You listen to me and Adam Enks talking about how we don't know how to stop doing things, so you know I'm going to do it forever. But imagine for a moment that the show did stop. Would it be worth, I don't know, a buck or two a month to bring it back? If it would be a real sad time for you if the show would disappear, consider going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and pledging, you know, some dollar amount that's right for you and your family to show the value you get out of me doing these shows. All right, pledge break is over. Let's get back to the fun stuff. Hi, I'm Stephen Getz from London, Canada, and I'm an idiot. I accidentally deleted my photos while trying to back them up. But to explain why this wasn't as big a disaster as it could have been, here's some background. I enjoy photography. I use Lightroom to organize and edit the raw files that I have accumulated over many years. I have a 2014 Mac Mini with various drives set up as a server. My daily computer is a 2018 13-inch MacBook Pro with a 250GB internal drive. My current DSLR, the Canon 80D, is a 24-megapixel camera, and its raw files average around 35 megabytes each. So my total collection of Tens of thousands of photos takes up hundreds of gigabytes, way too large to fit the entire collection onto my internal drive. The solution to this is to, is I only keep the current year's photos on my internal drive. My full collection of photos lives in many places. I have them on an external SSD to work on them with my MacBook Pro, but I also have them backed up onto two different drives attached to the Mac Mini via Thunderbolt and USB 3. To keep the collection in sync, I use Carbon Copy Cloner from Bombic Software. It syncs the folder of photos on drive A to the folder of photos on drive B. But I want to make sure I'm backing up the photos that live on the MacBook Pro, the current year's photos. So I went back to Carbon Copy Cloner. I set up a new task on the MacBook to sync the MacBook Pro's picture folder over the network to the photos folder on drive A, attached to the Mac Mini. Do you see the problem? 
I ran the task and it deleted all the photos on drive A and replaced them with the photos from the MacBook Pro, which were only from 2020. And then the original carbon copy cloner task on the Mac Mini also ran and deleted all the photos from drive B. I had chosen the parent folder on drive A instead of one of the subfolders like I should have. At this point, I had just wiped out all my photos. Luckily, I do have Backblaze for off-site backup, so if it came to it, I could have downloaded them all from Backblaze. But that would have been a download of hundreds of gigabytes and taken a long time. Luckily, I had that external SSD that also contained all my photos, so I was able to restore them from that. So the moral of the story with things like photos and irreplaceable documents, one copy is not enough. Have as many backups on as many different drives in as many different locations as is feasible for your situation. I also wouldn't consider it a backup if you only have two copies. A third copy is a necessity. Thank you for your time. This has been Stephen Getz from London, Canada. I think Sandy put it perfectly in the chat room where she said, can you imagine the sinking feeling in his stomach when he did that? Uh, I got I to gotta tell you, I do, I do definitely sympathize, but I love this story first because Stephen says he's an idiot at the beginning. That's exactly how he told me the story when it first happened. Second, I love that he's so good at backups. He had not one, but two more ways to fall back if he hadn't recovered from his foolishness. If you're a Carbon Copy Cloner user, you might be wondering, like Mike Price was in our Slack group, why Stephen wasn't able to recover from uh, the Carbon Copy Cloner safety net. Stephen explained that even though he did have that turned on, that feature turned on in Carbon Copy Cloner, it never seemed to create a safety net folder. However, after the recovery and after him having redone the backup task, the folder's there now, so no clue why that didn't work the first time. The other thing you might be yelling into your device is that you could mention that Backblaze would have sent him a hard drive with all of his data. He didn't have to download it all if he didn't want to. Um, and then if he sent the drive back, they would have given the cost of the drive back to him, so it would have cost him nothing. That definitely works. My friend Pat Dangler tested it in a non-crisis, but it does take a few days to get the drive back, so he would have been able to probably download his photos faster than waiting for that hard drive. Anyway, I think it's great that he reminds us of the good lessons of multiple backups and multiple ways of multiple types of media. It's not just fire, flood, and every other disaster known to man. It's also you have to protect your data from yourself. Recently, Dorothy, also known as Mac Lurker, posted some really amazing macro shots she took of some flowers in her backyard. She used her big girl camera and a new macro lens she got for Christmas. They looked amazing. Well, it inspired me to drag out my big girl camera, slap on the macro lens I have, and take it for my walk. I love taking macro shots, especially of flowers. And if you can get a bug on a flower, man, that's the best thing ever. I had a lot of fun on that one walk and barred my 40 photos down to two that I liked, and I posted those in Slack. Now, as much fun as that was, the problem is that I have to think ahead to bring my camera. It's a micro four-thirds camera. It's a, uh, an Olympus EM5 but it's still something I got to hang around my neck and I don't do it very often. But I always have my phone with me so I can listen to podcasts, unlock my door when I get home and call Pat Dengler to entertain me while I walk. I still see these great shots in my head though when I see unusual flowers. So I try to take those pictures with my iPhone. I usually try to use portrait mode and it almost always falls over in a heap. 
Portrait mode, in more cases than not, cannot get the flower and its stem in focus, so the stem gets erased and it's lost in the fake bokeh background. Often the petals get weird looking around the edges and that too. Anyway, it works just often enough that I keep trying, but I'm almost always disappointed. Well, the other day, Steve and I were working on a home project that's completely unrelated to the story, but I was wondering whether adding a wide-angle lens to one of our webcams might solve a problem we had. It was unlikely to be the right solution, so I was hunting for the cheapest possible wide-angle lens. In my searching, I found a lens combo kit with both a macro lens and a wide-angle lens from a company called, I'm going to pronounce it Creacer, it's C-R-I-A-C-R. Anyway, these lenses clip onto your phone. These types of lens clips have been around forever, most notably by the company Alloclip. But these are super expensive in the hundred of the hundred dollar kind of category. What surprised me about this Creaser lens kit was that it was sixteen dollars. So it's got to be complete and absolute junk, right? Well, you'd be wrong. For sixteen dollars, though, I figured it was worth a try, and I am astonished at the quality of this lens kit. I should manage, uh, mention that the company listed on Amazon is Creaser, but when you get the lens, it says Amir on it, A-M-I-R. The first thing I noticed about the Amir lenses is that they're heavy, which indicates a lot of glass, and that's usually a good thing. The macro lens only weighs one ounce, that's 28 grams for you Canadians, but the wide-angle lens weighs a whopping three ounces, or 86 grams. The two lenses screw together, and they, in turn, screw into a little clip that holds onto your phone. They come with a lens cap for the wide angle and a back cap for the macro, protecting both lenses, and it comes with a soft carrying case and a little cleaning cloth. Remember, this is a $16 kit. I paid 9 bucks for just a lens cap once. One of the complaints Dorothy and I have about our macro lenses for our big girl cameras is that they don't focus up very close. I think we can only focus as close as 7 inches away from our subject. The macro lens made by Amir is a 15x and can focus as close as 1.18 inches from the subject. That is crazy close up. While this can get super close, you're restricted to being that close though because the max distance is 1.57 inches. So you've got like just like three eighths of an inch of, of movement of uh, depth that you could be from your subject and still be in focus. So it's, it's pretty tight. The wide-angle lens is interesting because it only works if it's screwed into the macro lens. If you screw it into the clip without the macro lens and put it on your phone, it will not be able to focus. The wide-angle is 0.6x, so that's close to equivalent to the ultra-wide lens that's built into the iPhone's 11. So let's say you have an iPhone XS or a new iPhone SE, and you're kind of sad that you don't have the ultra-wide lens. Maybe you could take the same kind of photos by adding this lens for only 16 bucks. A lot cheaper than buying an iPhone 11. Now, you might be wondering if the two lenses would multiply if you put the wide angle on the iPhone and use the ultra-wide lens to take the picture. Do they multiply? Yeah, that doesn't work. The Amir lens clip system seems to only work when in conjunction with the normal lens of the iPhone. The clip that holds the lenses is designed to be universal, so you don't have to have a particular phone to make it work. It's got a rubbery clip side that goes on the screen of your phone, and on the back it has a slotted hole that allows the back camera to look through the lens. When you have a lens on the clip, you simply look through the lens to see if you have it lined up properly. It's really easy. So let's talk through the two lenses and how they worked in my testing. With just the macro lens in the clip, 
It's very light and something I might tend to carry around with me. There's no lens cap for the macro alone, though, which is kind of a shame. I mean, geez, they couldn't have included it for 16 bucks. Just kidding. I'll buy one. Anyway, the photos I've taken with this tiny macro lens are really cool. Like I said, I can focus up super close and the images, the images are super sharp and clear. If your subject is close and there's background that's farther away, you'll get this kind of artsy, fartsy and stylistic photo. The background looks almost like it all swooshed away from the center point. I took a shot of some tiny purple flowers in which the flowers are in really sharp focus and the green and purple of the rest of the shrub is out of focus and kind of swooshy, like I said. Now, the artsy fartsiness of the images may not be what you're looking for, but hold that thought. We're going to set aside the macro idea for a moment, but I promise I'm going to come back to it. When you add the wide-angle lens from a mirror to the macro lens, you now have quite the hefty setup. The macro plus the wide angle plus the clip weighs in at 4.4 ounces. To put this in perspective, my iPhone 11 Pro weighs 6.6 ounces. So that's like adding nearly another 70% on top of the weight of the phone. I looked it up. It's almost as much as if you stuck an SE to an iPhone 11 Pro. Anyway, I took a couple of side-by-side photos with the wide angle lens versus the iPhone 11 Pro's ultra wide lens. The 0.5 ultra-wide built into the phone took a far superior photo to the Amir lens added to the regular lens. The Amir 0.6 had a lot of lens aberration around the outer sides of the images. Now, I'm not surprised for the cost of the lens, but it would definitely not please the pixel peepers amongst you. Maybe this is why uh, lenses like the Clip are $100. Still, if it's between buying a whole new phone versus throw a $16 lens on an existing phone, you might find it good enough. One thing I did notice when using the wide-angle lens is that you'll want to experiment with rotating it around a little bit. In some cases, I could see a bright area in the view, but if I rotated the clip to be maybe more at a diagonal with respect to the phone, that bright area went away. You're also going to watch out for vignetting around the edges if you don't have it uh, rotated properly to where it's just perfectly over the lens. Now let's flip back to macro shooting. I think the sweet spot for me is to actually take macro shots with the wide angle lens also attached. Now you can't shoot quite as close up, but it focuses from 1.5 inches to as far away as you like. This means that I can get much more of the subject into the frame and yet still focus on some tiny little object in the picture. With the wide angle added to the macro, I found the background bokeh a fair amount less artsy-fartsy, less of the swooshing thing in the uh, previous images I talked about. With the lens combo, I was able to get some, I think, spectacular shots that I'm really pleased with. It's a little hard for me to remember which photos were from my uh, from which lens combination for my walk this morning, but I'm pretty sure most of the really cool ones were with both lenses. There's a great one looking right down into the curl of a deep pink rose that I am in love with. And you know what? I don't care how I took it. I really like the photo. Let's talk a little bit about ease of use. With both lenses attached, the Amir lens system is a bit ungainly to carry around ha- attached to the phone. It's easy enough to unclip from the phone, but if you want it at the ready, it takes a little bit to get the hang of holding it comfortably and securely as you walk around. I found that I could wrap my hand around the circumference of the lens with a couple of fingers under the phone, and it was quite secure and comfortable, but it took me a minute to figure out the best way to carry it. I didn't want to just hold onto the lens or just hold onto the camera. I needed to hold onto both. Switching lenses while walking along was a bit harder than I expected. 
The wide angle lens takes seven hand rotations. That's not full 360s, but you know, seven times I had to rotate it to remove it and put it back on. That's great to secure such a big piece of glass, but imagine me doing that while holding Tesla's leash. Luckily, in this case, Steve was holding Tesla for the experimental test run, but I'm usually alone and I can just see her lunge at a squirrel on my new lens, or worse yet, my expensive phone goes flying. The bulk of the lenses plus my phone isn't something I can put in my pocket, in the few shorts I own that actually have pockets, so it's definitely not something I'm going to carry around all the time. I might just throw the macro and clip into my pocket, though, for the chance of getting a nice bug on a flower from time to time. Now, I think the Amir 0.6 Wide Angle and 15X Macro Lens Kit is really fun and totally worth the 16 bucks I paid for it on Amazon. It's worth a lot more than that to me. But before you drop down that hard-earned $16, you might want to take a look at some of the other options they sell. I noticed after I bought this lens kit that there's a link on the page to a newer version for $23. I know, I know, it's a lot of money, $23, but it includes an even wider angle lens, an even more magnified macro, a fisheye lens, and a couple more, and comes with a hard carrying case. But you know what? If $23 is too rich for your blood and you want a different assortment of lenses, you might want to try the $10 kit I just bought from Creaser. I don't have it yet, but this one has a 12x zoom lens, which is why I bought it, a fisheye, and what looks like might be the same macro wide angle combo I already have. It's, it's hard to tell from the photo if it's the same one, but it looks like the same one. So the main reason I bring my big girl camera to events and on trips is for the giant 300 millimeter equivalent zoom lens. It's not always practical to have that lens with me, so maybe this little 12x zoom will fill the need in an emergency. I'm sure the quality won't be crazy good, but you know what? It might be good enough, especially for 10 whole dollars. I forgot to mention the $10 kit comes with a tripod and a phone mount and not one, but two clips for the phone. The clips also look longer, which I think would be better if you have other brands of phone than iPhones. The iPhone's primary lens is in the top corner, so the clip that came with my $16 kit works fine, but many Android phones have the cameras farther down and I'm not sure if it would actually reach. The bottom line is that I've had way more fun than 16 bucks worth of, of fun out of the Amir, or is it Creaser, macro and wide-angle lens kit, and I've only had it for one day. I can't wait to get my telephoto lens later this week. You can check out my best of album for my walk with the Amir lens in a link to iCloud.com. I've got a shared album up there that you can go see all of the neato photos I took with my $16 lens kit. All right, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your 15-year contributions if you want to play it on next week's show. The big celebration should be fun. I have a feeling the uh, the live audience is going to be it's going to be packed in there. You want to get there early because uh, you know Kevin takes up a bunch of seats. He's been giving, taking up fewer seats lately, though. But uh, it's been hopping every week ever since everybody's been locked up. How bored are you that you're here watching this? But anyway, uh, really appreciate the live show. But if you want to send in those contributions or dumb questions, comments, or suggestions, you know how you do that? You write to allison at podfeet.com. And I bet you can guess what my Twitter handle is. It's podfeet. And remember, of course, because everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to join my Patreon? You go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to just do a one-time donation? That's acceptable as well at podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook or Slack groups? Podfeet.com slash Facebook, podfeet.com slash Slack. 
to be honest, uh, things are hopping a little more in Slack these days than they are in Facebook. I'm just saying. Anyway, when you want to join in the fun of the live show next week to see us all partying and excited about 15 years, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.